This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, how pandemic prevention measures have been particularly tough on the mental health of of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. A puzzling link between two things that can cause disability as we age, cognitive decline and fractures. When you've got cataracts, why not get them both done at the same time? The pros and cons. And last Friday, Australia became the latest country to approve the Pfizer COVID vaccine down to the age of 12. That's for both individual protection and the community at large through large-scale immunity. But to achieve herd immunity, 80 to 90% of the entire population needs to be vaccinated. And that means children younger than 12, right down to babies. They'll need to have the jabs. But before that happens, we'll need to be sure the vaccines are safe and effective in young kids. And currently, there are trials in progress. The health report Sarah Seji has been investigating. So this is the medication. So BNT16262 vaccine, 3 micrograms and a 0.2 cc fluid. This is called a Three-year-old Andal Good is one of the youngest recipients of the Pfizer vaccine. That's it. No more poking, no more nothing. His mum, Zenaida Good, is a research fellow at Stanford University's Cancer Institute. I started looking for opportunities to protect my kids uh, because even though kids uh, often get mild uh, COVID-19, uh, they can still, in rare case, die. And in uh, some cases, up to 10 to 15%, uh, they can get long COVID. And I really didn't want my fr- my kids, of, especially, to, to get that. Andal's 10-month-old baby brother, Soren, has also had his jab. Well, baby Soren took it really well. He didn't even cry. Little Andal is three, so to him, of course, we had to explain uh, about the virus. And he understood that there is a scary virus that everybody's worried about. So knowing that a vaccine will protect him and he'll be able to do things that he wanted to do, uh, such as like riding a bus or going on an airplane, we explained to him that, yeah, if we are not afraid of the virus, we can do those things again. The brothers were vaccinated as part of phase one clinical trials recently held at Stanford, one of many sites investigating the safety and efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine for children. The trials have since progressed and, depending on the results, the data will soon be passed to regulators in different countries so they can consider whether to approve the vaccine for use. Pfizer says it expects this to happen by September for children aged 2 to 11. For children aged six months to two years, it'll be later in the year. Professor of Paediatrics Yvonne Maldonado from the Stanford School of Medicine is the principal investigator for the trials being held there. While the research continues for younger children, she says the vaccine has proven to be safe and effective for kids 12 and over. The Pfizer vaccines have been given to about 8.8 million children under uh, the age of 18. They have been remarkably safe. The major uh, issues that we have heard about is the very rare side effect of heart inflammation, and that's called myocarditis, um, that has occurred primarily in older male uh, teenagers or young male adults, somewhere on the order of a dozen or two dozen cases per million doses given. So it is quite rare and it does seem to uh, resolve very quickly. While most children who get COVID will have it mildly, she says for some it can be very serious. 
There have been in the United States over 4 million children diagnosed with COVID-19 with over 16,000 hospitalizations and about three to 600 deaths in just half of the states that report hospitalizations in children. So we only get reports from about half of the United States. Over in Baltimore, Dr. Corsa Talat from Johns Hopkins University is the principal investigator for another Pfizer pediatric trial. The other thing that we're seeing with the Delta variant is that because it's so much more contagious and because so many adults are vaccinated, we're seeing children as a proportion of the total number of cases rising and more children hospitalized with COVID. We're also starting to see more long COVID symptoms in children. We know that obesity is a major risk factor for severe illness with COVID of all ages and children who are obese are more likely to be hospitalized. There is absolutely an argument to be made for vaccinating those of a high risk at any age. Last Friday, the Pfizer vaccine was approved for use in Australia for children down to the age of 12. Dr. Asher Bowen is a paediatric infectious diseases specialist at the Telethon Kids Institute and Perth Children's Hospital. I think it's important that the vaccine has been um, approved for use in adolescents first. They're probably slightly more like adults in the way in which they experience COVID. And so whilst we have learned very much that younger people do not get nearly as sick, adolescents are just in that higher risk group than younger children. As vaccines become available to more age groups, she agrees we'll need to determine who needs access first. I think that the UK has done a really good job of trying to tease that out and have really identified that neurological um, disorders, disabilities, as well as multiple comorbidities are some of the things that are putting adolescents and children into a higher risk group. So as well as obesity and asthma have been identified, I think that there are some other groups that we need to pay attention to. Dr Bowen says when priority groups are vaccinated, and if supply isn't an issue, there may be benefits to vaccinating kids. Would there be an indirect benefit to reduce um, transmission risk in the population? Might there be a reason that we want to um, vaccinate children and young people in order to help with their education and, and get our schools back functioning? So really trying to think about those indirect benefits and whether they are sufficient that children and young people should be vaccinated. And Professor Maldonado from Stanford says... It could help provide stability for children who've been missing out on school. Taken together with the fact that we need more people vaccinated to achieve broad immunity in the population, it is an important concern. The ability to protect uh, children long term and help them go back to school uh, is critical. We found in the last year and a half or so that keeping children out of school had a significant negative impact on mental health, a neurocognitive development, uh, learning, of course, social skills. There were just a lot of issues. But having a discussion about vaccinating children is almost a first world luxury at the moment. There are countries where health systems are overwhelmed and those most in need of vaccines can't get them. It's not only an equity issue, but means there are more opportunities for variants to arise. The WHO is asking people to think about diverting vaccines to these countries first. While Dr Talat from Johns Hopkins thinks getting kids vaccinated is important, she says vaccine inequity can't be ignored. I think that if this were a fair world, we should vaccinate people based on risk, regardless of where they are, regardless of 
their country's ability to pay for vaccines. Dr. Khazar Talat from Johns Hopkins University, and that story was from Sarah Sedgi. You're with RN's Health Report. The pandemic is affecting all of us in some way or another. Many are trying to make ends meet without a job or have lost loved ones without saying goodbye. And for some, they're reliving traumatic moments from their past. It's hitting Indigenous people particularly hard. Even before COVID, the rate of suicide among First Nations people was alarming. So now with social distancing and border closures in place, what impact is this having on an already vulnerable part of our community? And what costs are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people paying to keep their communities safe? Tani Jash is a health and science reporter and a Ewan Camilleroy woman, and she's been looking at just this. Welcome, Tani. Hi, Tegan. Thanks for having me. So how does the mental health of Indigenous people differ from Australian, the Australian average in normal times and what's happened over the course of the pandemic? So I think it's still early days to really measure the impact of the pandemic at this stage. But what we do know is prior to COVID, um, data shows us that Indigenous lives were lost to suicide at a much higher rate than uh, non-Indigenous people. And um, just to give you a bit of a, a snapshot, I guess, of what that looked like, a report was released by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Um, and between 2018 and 2019, there were some um, really, I guess, key things that came out of that report. And one of them was that 31% of Indigenous adults were experiencing high levels of psychological distress and this appeared even higher for uh, stolen generation survivors or families that had relatives removed. And if we look at 2019 alone, deaths caused by suicide for Indigenous people was at three times the rate of non-Indigenous people. Oh, uh, and, if, and if we look at the, um, the hospitalised um, rate for self-harm in teenagers, um, that was also at double the rate of their peers. So, you know, really alarming rates there. And I think it's really important to remember that each of these stats represent a life. So you can only imagine the effect it's having 18 or so months on. Right. And this is all before the pandemic. And we know that mental health, all of our mental health has taken a bit of a hit this year. What general trends, like we don't have stats yet, but what general trends are we seeing over the course of the pandemic? Yeah, so I spoke to uh, some experts who research or work in suicide prevention. And there are a couple of themes that came out of the conversations that I've had. Uh, one of them was that COVID um, has amplified existing issues such as domestic violence, poverty, uh, intergenerational trauma, and it's also creating this underlying anxiety around the virus getting into our communities and especially impacting our elders or those who are suffering with chronic health conditions. Um, another area was... Uh, border closures and there was some breakdown um, in communication for communities in regional and remote parts of Australia and um, there were occasions where some people had found themselves stuck a long way from home when the biosecurity measures and restrictions came into effect. Um, but I guess uh, one thing to point out was uh, that local Aboriginal medical services have played a really key role in helping ease some of that anxiety and getting that messaging out. And they've been a really, um, you know, crucial uh, organisation in keeping our communities safe and protected. Um, 
I also spoke to CEO of an Indigenous organisation called Thidley that provides support to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families who have lost someone to suicide. Uh, and her name is Jacqueline McGowan. And she explained how these border closures had impacted the social and emotional well-being of Indigenous people. We do know that social and emotional well-being has been severely impacted and negatively impacted. People can't engage with other families along their song lines because, as you know, for example, our song lines go across the state and territory borders. We had a situation where the people in the APY lands couldn't meet with family in the Nunnandunna lands. People in Darwin couldn't meet with family in the Kimberley. Right, so we've got these colonial borders that are just uh, determining where people can go and it's not taking that cultural side of things into account. And so, okay, we've obviously got a problem, poor mental health, the risk of suicide, uh, interventions are needed, but you can't just copy and paste mainstream interventions here, can you? No, no. And I think... Uh, what's really important here is understanding how health is understood from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective because it's quite different from um, the mainstream view of health. Um, and in our community, there's a, there's a term that we use called social and emotional being, which, um, sorry, social and emotional well-being, which is a concept that incorporates Indigenous knowledge, culture and history into our approach to health, which is, I guess, a more holistic way of looking at health. Right. So what kind of, what kind of factors are you, have, have programs started doing to overcome the fact that we're physically distant from each other? Yeah, so I think when, we, when we're talking about the, um, the health of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it's really important to look at, to think about um, the self not only being viewed through the mind and the body, so we also um, are connected through kinship, through culture, through our community, through country and our connection to ancestors. But I think what is really important and um, a factor that needs to be taken to, into account is also the historical and the political and social context, um, context like colonisation, forced removal of children, dispossession of land, uh, racism and all of those things that are continuing to impact Indigenous people today and is why it's a little bit different to uh, how uh, non-Indigenous people um, might go about receiving um, uh like receiving help for mental, uh, receiving help with mental health, sorry. Mm. So briefly, what sort of solutions are the experts you're talking to suggesting? I think working in uh, partnership with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to be really, I guess, informed um, around what this, uh, what social and emotional wellbeing means to us um, and uh, also ensuring that these mainstream services um, also are culturally appropriate and culturally safe for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to access. Um, so I think they're really important factors um, to, to take into account. And also, I think just ensuring that I think that there needs to be more support for Aboriginal uh, medical services because they're, they're like our lifeline in our communities and really keeping us strong and um, have really great relationship relationship mm. with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country. So they're really vital in terms of protecting our social and emotional wellbeing. Thanks, Tani, for joining us. Thanks, Tegan. Tani Jash is a health and science reporter here in the ABC Science Unit and a Ewan Camilleroy woman. 
cataracts are progressive opacities in the lenses of your eyes, and the treatment is removal of the lens and replacement with a synthetic intraocular lens. It's unusual to have a cataract in just one eye. Usually they affect both, and sometimes ophthalmic surgeons or health systems prefer doing both at the same time. But it's controversial, and a large review of nearly 2 million people in the United States has raised concerns. Associate Professor Shamin Samarokrama is an ophthalmologist at the University of Sydney. Welcome back to the Health Report, Shamin. Thank you, Norman. What are the arguments for having bilateral cataracts the same day? Well, the main argument is convenience and ease for the patient. Effectively, having it on the same day means that the eyes get treated at the same time and it's faster recovery, less burden for the patient, less number of appointments to see the doctor, and they can get on with their lives faster. So that's the main reason why people choose for the same day surgery. What did the study find? Well, it was a large study, as you mentioned, 1.8 million people. And what they did was they compared same-day surgery against two groups of delayed surgery. One was a short, less than a month, uh, less than two weeks, sorry. And the other one was a delayed, long delay, which was 15 days to 90 days. But what they found basically was that the delayed groups, both of them, had a slightly better visual outcome only a small amount, three letters, but there was a higher proportion of people. Three letters or three lines? Three letters, right. so half a line on a, a standard chart. But 6 to 10% of people had perfect vision um, or better vision in that second eye compared to the same-day surgery group. Right. So was that significant, that reduction in visual acuity? Well, it I think it really depends on the individual. If you've got perfect vision, a half a line difference is a slight fuzziness when you're looking at distances. So the vision's still very good, but it's just not perfect. But the main issue is, say someone's got other medical problems and their vision's not great to begin with, even one letter or half a line will make a big difference for them. So I think it's, it depends on that individual patient. And what you're saying here is that some people who get a cataract done have already got, say, retinal damage or other things going on in their eye, which means that even when you correct perfectly, you've still got a problem left. That's correct. So if they've got an underlying medical thing, and the common things that we see are glaucoma, macular degeneration, diabetic disease, that it limits the potential of the eye to see. So even perfect surgery won't give perfect vision. Now, what's the practice in Australia? The vast majority of us prefer delayed surgery and the majority are in that early delay group. So most of us are within two weeks of surgery and sometimes it could be a bit longer. There's only a small proportion who really do bilateral same-day surgery. So what, and the what, main, go on, yep. I was going to say the main advantage of that is that the formula, so to calculate the intraocular lens, that plastic lens that you mentioned at the intro, um, you have to use complex formulas to figure out what lens to use. But that formula is not 100% accurate. It's pretty good, but there's a proportion of people where it just doesn't work as well as we hope. So you can so fix it up in the second do, eye. Exactly. So we do one eye as a test. We find out whether their eyes behave as the formula predicts, and if so, great. But if not, we can make adjustments so that the second eye turns out better. And the same-day surgery doesn't let that happen. Is there much risk of complications? In other words, if you do both eyes at the same time, is a worry that you could get increased, you know, double the complications? 
Um, there is a small risk, but that's been mitigated. So the big thing that we worry about is an infection, which is rare, but if it does happen, it can be devastating. And if both eyes are operated on, the risk is that it happens to both eyes. But what those who do same-day surgery do is that they use completely different equipment for the eyes. So effectively, the risk is mitigated as if it was done on separate days. So if somebody wants that convenience or a health system or an insurer wants that convenience, I mean, what, what's the message for consumers here, for somebody who's, who's got bilateral cataracts, which most people who've got cataracts, right, they are bilateral, both sides. That's correct. Yeah. So for the vast majority, it is bilateral. Um, I guess what we often say is talk to your doctor and your ophthalmologist about it. The vast majority will urge you towards having it done separately. Um, for the reasons that we mentioned, there's better accuracy by being able to do the second eye slightly later and seeing whether the calculations are correct. But if it is a big priority, and there are certain situations, for example, they can't do multiple anesthetics for argument's sake. In that situation, it is a calculated risk and they need to realise that there is a chance that the vision's not as good as it can be. But you know, you, you know what you're getting. Luke, Shamin, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, thanks. Associate Professor Shamin Samarukwama, who is an ophthalmologist and based at the University of Sydney. Ageing brings with it many insults, and it's not always easy to tease them apart. But research is uncovering a link between two seemingly unrelated conditions, cognitive decline and the risk of bone fractures. Both of these can have big impacts on quality of life and frailty, and both start silently. So anything that can assist in early diagnosis is useful. A new study has looked at several thousand Canadians over a decade and a half and has shown that in women, at least, where there was cognitive decline, there was often bone loss and vice versa. Jacqueline Center from the Garvin Institute of Medical Research and St Vincent Hospital was one of the authors and she joins us now. Hi, Jacqueline. Oh, hi, Tegan. Your brain and your bones seem pretty separate. So what is going on here? Or what could be going well, on here? <laughs> okay. Well, in this study, uh, we, we looked at women and men over a period of 15 years. And we saw that those who had significant decline in uh, cognitive function, or those that had actually a decline, we saw that a, that a decline in cognitive function was associated with a decline in bone loss. So the two conditions seemed to be happening at the same time. But more than that, once we adjusted for other things, such as, you know, the ageing process itself and lifestyle factors, uh, the, they were still significantly associated. Whereas in men, they also both declined over time. But once we adjusted for things, the association was no longer significant. It, it was there to some extent, but not in a significant way. So there does seem to be some link between the two conditions in women. And, and moreover, as you mentioned, those that had a significant decline in cognition uh, in the first five years subsequently had an increased risk of fracture of about 60 to 70%. And it's important that these are people who do not have dementia. These are all people who are in the uh, functioning well in the community. So it was, it's something that's happening early on. Is one causing the other? And if, 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 like, if the cognitive decline is bad, does that mean the bone loss is worse? 
we can't really say if one is causing the other because what we actually found was that um, cognitive decline was associated with bone loss, but if we turned it around the other way, we also saw that bone loss was associated with cognitive decline. So we can't necessarily say that one's causing the other, but there are a number of thing, a number of factors that are common to both, and it could be, for instance, that things that happen with uh, bone loss or things that happen with cognitive decline uh, accelerate the other. So, mm. for instance, we know that uh, inflammation, for instance, is associated with both bone loss and cognitive decline. So there could be something, you know, on those uh, on in that factor. Um, also, uh, cognitive decline has been associated, or at least dementia has been associated with increased risk of falls, for instance. So it could be that there's, and and therefore falls would likely, you know, are associated with fractures. With fractures. So. So. So maybe there's an external Sorry. factor that's driving both of these things, but they're both they're, they're both things that can uh, significantly contribute to disability, uh, people's lack of independence, and those sorts of things. So if there is something here, and we've got someone coming in with with the fractures or osteoporosis, or on the other hand, cognitive decline, how does this perhaps? How do your findings perhaps help with screening for the other? Okay, so both of these conditions are silent until they reach the, you know, the, the outcome, which is often, as you mentioned, associated with significant disability. So you don't know that you've got osteoporosis until you either have a bone density test or you have a fracture, for instance. And you may not notice or other people may not notice early cognitive decline. So I think what this shows is that we should be really cognizant of the fact that these two diseases, which are very common, uh, occur, you know, may be occurring together. And so if you've got someone, for instance, uh, where you, where there is cognitive decline or cognitive decline is noticed, that should prompt someone to think, well, hey, maybe we should look at their bones. Could they be at increased risk of fracture? Um, and if their bone density is low, then do something about it because certainly once you have a fracture, the outcomes are particularly bad. Are these two disciplines that are generally good at talking to each other to start with, the the brain people and the bone people? Not necessarily. And in fact, um, what tends to happen is that people tend to look after their own condition. So in fact, with osteoporosis, for instance, we know that most people are not treated um, those who have fractures, we, they're about less than 30% of women and even fewer men are actually treated for osteoporosis. And people who have multiple comorbidities tend to be less likely uh, to be treated simply because other things come first. So it's, it's not always the fact that, you know, the whole health of the person is looked at. Um, what about men? You said that the, the association was there in women. Why not men? That's a good question. I mean, the most uh, likely, or not only, I shouldn't say likely, but um, a potential reason uh, is that in our study we didn't have that many men. So we had 600 men and about 1,700 women. 
So although the association was there, it simply may be that we didn't have enough men to show an association that was significant because they, they did seem to be linked in men. It's just that the association was not as significant. So that's certainly one factor. The other possibility is that something like estrogen, uh, which we know declines with women in you know postmenopause, that's certainly associated with bone loss. And there's some suggestion that it may be associated with cognitive decline, but the data on that are really very poor. And mm. certainly giving estrogen um, hasn't really been associated with improvement uh, One, in two. cognition. One to watch then. Jack- Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tegan. Professor Jacqueline Centre is the head of the Clinical Studies and Epidemiology Lab at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research and an endocrinologist at St Vincent's Hospital. What do you make of this association, Norman? Bones and brains, cause and effect, a link, but it just shows up what you were talking about laterally, which is that... Um, we have uh, medical specialties that do different parts of the body and not necessarily the whole person. Sounds a bit trite, but still unfortunately the case. Yeah, that's right. And so if you've got a question about that or any of our other stories or anything really, as long as it's at least remotely health-related, you can email us, healthreport at abc.net.au, like Paul has. Are you ready for some questions, Norman? I'm ready. Paul is 63 and has had Graves' disease since the age of 45, which is a thyroid disease. My question is, has the treatment, Paul's question is, has the treatment of Graves' disease improved since his initial diagnosis 20-something years ago? And is his current method of treatment potentially a problem into old age? He's on some uh, antithyroid drugs. So Graves' disease is called thyrotoxicosis. So it's an overactive thyroid gland, usually as a result of an immune problem. And it's Unfortunately, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, I mean, basically the treatment hasn't changed very much. There's various treatments for it. You can take radioactive iodine to get rid of the the thyroid gland or part of the thyroid gland. You can have surgery for it um, and you can have these antithyroid drugs. And it really hasn't changed that much. Um, There are some different drugs they use nowadays, but it's essentially the same treatment as as always. Um, I really, I'm not prepared to comment on just whether or not um, Paul's current treatment is going to create a problem later into life. We've really got to talk through that with with your um, endocrinologist. Um, But once it's treated, people do extremely well, um, but it's not something you want to leave and the, the side of the symptoms of there are a lot of different symptoms of uh, hyperactive thyroid so shake tremor feeling agitated your eyes can enlarge uh, it's called exothalmia and that can be difficult to treat um, and there are various other symptoms as well and the good news is that usually thyrotoxicosis essentially an overactive thyroid is usually picked up sooner than an underactive thyroid an underactive thyroid is probably something that is underdiagnosed in Australia, but symptoms of an overactive thyroid are usually pretty dramatic and can be picked up fairly early. As someone with an underactive thyroid, they look similar on ultrasound sometimes. So diagnosing um, both of them can be a bit complicated, but obviously people who know what they're doing know how to diagnose them. Yeah, and uh, Paul is saying that his thyroid function has been stable now for some years and that's a good place to be. So from the throat to the bowel, uh, Richard is asking about bowel cancer screening. Uh, We've talked before about how it's available for people up to age 74. Richard's approaching that age and is wondering why this program finishes then. It's a very good question because people are going to live for another 20, sometimes 25 years beyond age 74 and their risk of colon cancer will continue to rise after that. 
Um, it's just that the clinical trials are only done up to that age and therefore the evidence for benefit is only up to that age. You- That's so interesting because we were talking last week, Norman, about clinical trials and women's health and that we're kind of constrained by the evidence that we have before us and the people who do trials have their reasons for choosing what they do, but it affects people's health. It does. And these clinical trials into screening take a long time to perform. And when they were originally designed, life expectancy was very different. So at 74, you probably had a more limited life expectancy than you do now. And that's, uh, you know, and that's a problem. But you can choose to be screened yourself. I mean, you can just go and have fecal occult blood. You can buy it at the chemist. Various other organisations will sell you one. And I think most people in the area would say that you should continue to do it, even though the government might not sponsor you to do it for, for free. And here, you're, you're not talking about very much money to do your own fecal occult blood. Um, and that's fairly straightforward and it's not going to break the bank. It's not as if you're going to have to have an expensive colonoscopy. And if you do have a positive fecal occult blood, your, med- your health insurance or Medicare will pay for the colonoscopy to be done. Should Australia change its policy around this? It's going to be difficult for the government to change its policy. It took forever to get the government to change its policy to actually follow the guidelines and actually have everyone screened from the age of 50 fully. And that's only relatively recently. So I don't think they're going to extend it beyond 74. But if you're going to live another 20-odd years and get colon cancer and need... Um, extensive surgery or, or expensive chemotherapy that's also going to be de- deleterious to your health, um, there's a lot of benefit from diagnosing earlier. This is a curative disease. Okay, that's good to know. Now, a question from Neela, who her question is inspired by an episode of NCIS. She says she doesn't usually take her medical advice from TV crime dramas, but there was a medical examiner on the show that said nail pitting can be a sign of psoriasis or inflammatory arthritis. She had that uh, and she had rheumatoid arthritis. Do we have any insight into what causes this and why it may show up before more other obvious symptoms of a disorder like rheumatoid arthritis? Well, I'm not sure it shows up before, but so, so this actually raises a really interesting story around the nails. The nails are a really interesting place to diagnose various diseases. So, for example, you can diagnose chronic lung disease from the tips of your fingers and around your nails, because in some people with chronic lung disease, the tip of the fingers um, it's called clubbing. The tip of the fingers expands and you, you, clubbing is what it says it is. You, they, they, they just look a bit clumsy and so on. It's not so much the nails. You can have a serious illness and get over it. And then some weeks or months later, your nails show a ridge from that, um, from that period of serious illness. You can get weak um, nails that are easily broken, maybe a sign of anemia. And yes, autoimmune disease can cause problems in the nails as well. And obviously you can get fungal diseases in the nails. So the nails are an important thing to look at when you're diagnosing disease. And nobody's absolutely sure, but it probably is the growth plate in your, uh, of your nails can be disrupted by serious illness and um, and the, the and essentially the there's disruption of the growth of the nail because your body's busy doing other stuff and not concentrating on growing the nails. That's very simplistic, but that's probably what's going on. I'm not sure it's absolutely known. Oh my gosh, so nails are like canaries in the coal mines. I wonder if I should stop. My nails at the moment are sparkly blue. I could be hiding all sorts of diseases, Norman. Uh, best not to know. <laughs> now, I think you've got a question for me today. Yeah. 
I gather, this is from Andrew, I gather COVID-19 is an example of a zoonosis, in other words, a disease that spreads to humans from animals. I was wondering how new variants may come about through reverse zoonosis. Well, I suppose it still is zoonosis. In other words, going from human animals to animal animals. What's the chance of that happening? Well, yeah, I mean, it's no less likely, I suppose, than it is to go from an animal to a human, although I suppose we're accepting uh, pathogens from all of the animals and animals are only accepting pathogens from one species, that is humans. But yes, it does happen. It's happened before. And it doesn't just happen with viruses either. It can happen with parasites, bacteria, fungal infections, and it can work in our favour sometimes. So, for example, ferrets can catch COVID-19, and that has been useful for us because we can use them then as a as a model animal to study our vaccines and our treatments but it is it is a big risk and one of the big um, things that shone a spotlight on this was the h1n1 pandemic the swine flu pandemic in the 2000s because the swine flu came from pigs but it was also possible for humans to transmit back into pigs and for the same reasons that we've been worried about zoonoses coming into humans and the, the sort of things that our our society has, is doing in modern times, like living in closer proximity with lots of animals, global animal trade, global human uh, travel, and um, impacting habitat destruction and basically encroaching on wild animals' habitats. These are all things that increase the chances of humans catching diseases from other animals. But similarly, we could we could give them back to animals again. At the moment, I, I don't know of any situation where we've caused a pandemic in animals that has then threatened us again. But uh, it's one of these things that uh, global health organisations, including the World Health Organisation, has keep, is keeping a close eye on. And this concept that has emerged in, the, in recent years called One Health, which is not just about our health, but it's about the health of humans and animals and the environment and the fact that these things all work together and, and having a One Health approach to human health actually helps everyone. And I think there was some, wasn't there a suggestion, remember those mink that were had to be slaughtered in Scandinavia that they may have actually caught it from a human? Wasn't there yeah. some suggestion about that? And it was mutating in, in the mink and they were, yes, slaughtering them to stop the chances that it could continue to mutate and then come back into humans again. That's, that's one That's one to uh, to go back and listen through the uh, the health report archives, Norman. Yeah, or Coronacast, can't remember which one we did it on. I think it was both. Well, I think that's all. T- that's all we've got time for today. That's right. But of course, again, if you have questions, email us, healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.